Good morning all, it's great to be with you once again. We're going to think together about some scriptures which, where we find the word great. Hmm. You see in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And there's all sorts of scriptures that shed light on different aspects of our experience of greatness. And we'll see that in a few minutes. Let's pray. Father, we gladly acknowledge that you are our great God. That our Lord Jesus is our great Saviour. We thank you that you've called us into a life of real greatness. We recognize in and of ourselves we feel so often very small, insignificant, unimportant, but we thank you that in your eyes we are each of us very special. And we know from your word that you really do want us, each of us, to have a great life. So speak to us now by your spirit, we pray, in Jesus' name. I'm going to begin by reading a little passage of scripture which some of you might uh, be shocked when you hear it. Unless you know the Bible, you maybe haven't heard this particular passage before. It's in Acts chapter 5 and the opening verses. We learn from the end of chapter 4 that the believers, and there were only a limited number of them in these days of course, they did not claim their possessions to be their own, but they shared everything. They shared everything. And various Christian groups have tried to do that down through the years and it's mostly not worked very well. It's a great deal of grace. It has to be God's leading. Otherwise, it just doesn't work, I'm afraid. Anyway, let's read on. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept back for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias heard this. He fell down and he died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came in forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, yes, she said, that. that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree? to test the spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. We'll come back to speak about that later. You see, God is the greatest being in the universe. 
Creator, Redeemer, Lord of all. There is nobody greater than our God. We would all agree on that. But the thing is, God has programmed every human being to need to worship. Each of us has within us an inbuilt need to worship. It's one of the instincts God has given us. We need to find somebody, in a sense, greater than we are. Ah, we don't want an object of worship who is less than we are. That doesn't make sense. But to find someone infinitely greater than we are, that meets our need to worship. And the sad thing is that when people do not come to know God through the Lord Jesus Christ and they worship God and enjoy doing so and be blessed in doing so, then they worship something else or someone else. You have to see football supporters, whether they're in France or anywhere else, they go crazy over goals and things because they're worshipping their football team and they're worshipping a particular football player. He is the greatest. This guy is the greatest. He scores goals every time he plays. That's worship. Many Christians could learn a lot from the enthusiasm, the fervor of these people who worship, but they worship the wrong thing or the wrong person. Ah, well, well. When we go back to the beginning of the New Testament, which is the story of the early church, we find the word great occurring again and again. Let's look at one, some of these this morning. That chapter 4 that I mentioned before we read in chapter 5 tells us that these believers were together, they didn't claim anything as their own, their own, they shared their possessions, and then were told with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace or great grace was upon them all. The apostles had an exceptional anointing of the Spirit upon them after Pentecost, and it enabled them to bear witness to the reality of a risen Lord who had conquered death and the powers of darkness, and from their very lives it seemed grace overflowed. Grace is, is God's kindness given to us, though we don't deserve it. And how desperately we need in our nation today churches, Christians, who in some measure have this great power and great grace that these apostles had. Because, you see, we are trying to introduce unbelievers to someone who is not just one more person they might like to get to know. The person we are trying to introduce them to, our Lord Jesus Christ, is our great God and Saviour, as he's described in Titus chapter 2. We're waiting, says Paul, for the reappearing, the appearing on earth of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The devil would try to tone down our prayer life, our worship experience, and our effective witness. But surely the more we get to know Jesus, the more we share our life with the Lord Jesus Christ, and the more we experience his great blessings in our life, the more he becomes the centre of our life and the passion of our life. If he's not the passion of our life, there's something wrong. We sometimes sing a song which says, the greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. I think we could meet some Christians, not here perhaps, but in certain churches and fellowships this morning, and their life doesn't say that to their unconverted friends. It doesn't give the impression.
that the greatest thing for them in their life is knowing Jesus. He is the greatest. He is fantastic. But they don't live that way. Their life doesn't convey that. But you see, these the apostles were so anointed with the power of the Spirit that they had an effective witness to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then suddenly we move from chapter 4 into chapter 5, which we read, and we find it's not great power and great grace this time, it's great fear. The Bible says one of the tragic things about the unbelieving world is there's no fear of God before their eyes. If they believe that God exists at all, they don't fear him. Well, if you Christians want to believe in a God we can't see, that's fine by us, but don't expect us to do that. No fear of God. I mean, if people genuinely feared God and feared he could judge people like they did here, they might not be so quick to see to seriously sin in case God came in swift judgment as he did Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know God deals more strictly with the sins of Christians than with non-Christians? These two were Christians. That husband and wife were Christians. And God killed them because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Whoa, hold on. Great fear came on the church and not surprisingly on all the others who heard what had happened to these two. If we move over to Acts chapter 6, we meet the next Christian who was killed, not this time by God, but by his enemies. You remember there was a problem in the early church. The, the certain group of people felt they were being left out in the distribution of food and it wasn't fair. And the apostles said, well, we're not going to get involved in this stuff. Appoint other people to take care of this. And they asked the church to choose certain suitable men full of the spirit and wisdom who would be responsible for overseeing the domestic side of things. And they chose these men, one of whom was Stephen, Interestingly, you see, what they were doing didn't seem a particularly spiritual ministry, looking after the food arrangements. And yet, to do that, they had to be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Lesson for us all. Anyway, Stephen was one of these men, and he's described as a man full of God's grace and power. And not only did he take part in looking after the distribution of the food, but he did some very other very wonderful things. He did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. You see, why do we have to believe that miracles and signs only belong to the New Testament period? They don't. From time to time down through the years, there have been seasons of blessing when God has worked miraculously, and particularly in situations where people had nothing, and he moved in great power and performed miracles through his servants. Here is Stephen not only taking care of the catering arrangements and helping to do so, but performing great miracles and signs and wonders among the people. But opposition arose. Ah, when God begins to move in greater power, the enemy begins to move in greater power as well. Opposition comes in the heel of ministry and powerful ministry by the Lord through his people. So, Stephen finds himself with opposition. And, however, 
these men who are criticizing him and are complaining about what he's doing, they couldn't succeed in arguing against what he was doing. They couldn't, it says, stand up against his wisdom or the Holy Spirit by which he spoke. So what did they do? They brought in some false witnesses, not something unknown in the modern world. They brought in some false witnesses who would tell lies about Stephen so they might have a case against him that could be brought to bear upon him and lead to his punishment. Well, as the people listened in the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leader's court was called the Sanhedrin, as they listened to what was going on, they saw the face of Stephen and it looked like the face of an angel. This guy lived close to God. There are a few people who have faces like that, not many. He had the face like the face of an angel. And the high priest asked them, are these charges true? Didn't expect the long answer he got. Are these charges true, he said to Stephen. And Stephen spoke so long, giving his reply at once to 50 more, 50 and more verses in our Bibles. <laughs> Talk about taking the opportunity. And Stephen laid it on the line, reminding these Jewish leaders of the history of the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament time, and reminding them of the shameful behavior of the Jewish people, how again and again they had reacted against God and ignored God and defied God and rebelled against God, and God had to deal severely with them on account of these things. And so the speech of Stephen went on and on and on. And then came the punchline. Now preachers don't usually talk like this to congregations. But this man, Stephen, spoke like this to this leading Jewish court in the land. He said, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit and so on. He hammers home accusations of guilt to these men. And the crowning accusation is... They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him. The leaders of the Jewish people are being accused of murdering Jesus, which they did with the help of the Roman governor Pilate. That was more than the congregation could stand. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. To these men, that was blasphemy. They could not take any more. So they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him to death. And they did stone him to death. And as Stephen was dying, the first Christian martyr, he prayed two short prayers which were almost exactly the same as Jesus prayed when he went to the cross. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Now one of the people who was witnessing all this was a young man called Saul of Tarsus. He was there and he agreed with what these Jewish leaders were doing because he himself had a fanatical hatred of the early Christian church. But he couldn't shake that off. He couldn't forget that and God used that to bring him to the point of surrender to Jesus. So what is going on here? There are great signs and wonders going on. But the outcome of these signs and wonders in this instance was the death 
of this lovely man, Stephen. The first two to die were husband and wife Ananias and Sapphira. They were literally killed by God as an act of judgment. Because you see, let's pause to say this. They were accused of lying to the Holy Spirit. Christians from time to time sin in a variety of ways. Sometimes they tell lies. But the Bible seems to indicate that whatever you do to a Christian, you do to Jesus. The Lord confronted Saul on the road to Damascus and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Was he persecuting Jesus? He was persecuting Christians. But by implication, Jesus was saying, don't you understand what you do to my people, you do to me. Hurt my family and you hurt me. Oh yes. Now take that a stage further. When we lie to a fellow Christian, if we lie to a fellow Christian, that's better, we lie to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is in that Christian's life. I remember still two men coming to a celebration rally I was, I was at and they were visitors from England actually and they asked permission to say a few words and they were given permission by the person leading the meeting yes you can say a few words you've got some words from the Lord who want to hear them and the word this man brought was an eye opener to me he pointed out for example that if you a Christian choose unwisely to watch on television, late night television, and some pornographic stuff. What are you doing? Oh, of course, Christians would say, well, I'm, I'm, risking, I'm risking getting spiritually contaminated, defiled. Yes. Is that all? No, no. This man pointed out, if a Christian does that sort of thing, and sits and watches pornography on television, he's making the Holy Spirit watch that because the Holy Spirit is in his life. Did you realise that? Whew, that was an eye honour to me. Lie to a Christian and you're lying to the Holy Spirit. What we do to our fellow Christians, God feels very keenly and takes very seriously. Now, moving on. Leaving chapter 6 and going over to chapter 8, we're told that following the death of, Saul, of, of, of Stephen, persecution arose against the church at Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered and went here, there and everywhere. And one of the men who left Jerusalem was a man called Philip who went down to a city in Samaria. Persecution does tend to follow blessing. Why is the Christian church in this country not persecuted more than it is? It is already persecuted. You must have read of some, of some Christians who have been heard saying things in public that were not politically correct. They got a tap on the shoulder, somebody called the police, and they spent the night in the cells. And they were charged with offensive language in a public place. Christians are being persecuted in this nation. But it's very low key. But in other parts of the world, the more powerfully the Spirit of God is moving, the more the enemy retaliates and persecution is part of his retaliation program. But God is not outdone. God will always come up better with something more wonderful than anything Satan can do.
So in chapter 8, we just don't find only the reference to the great persecution breaking out against the church in Jerusalem, the mother church. But we find that Philip goes down to Samaria and begins to preach in Samaria. He proclaims the Messiah, and the crowds heard him, and they saw the miraculous signs he did. They all paid close attention. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. Samaria had never seen anything like this before. The blessing that was being poured out. People who had been held captive by evil spirits were being liberated from these evil spirits. People who were bound by illness of various kinds were being gloriously healed. No wonder the next verse says, so there was great joy. <laughs> great joy in that city. Some of you may have been in meetings where it was quite evident that God was healing powerfully, instantly. And it's wonderful when that happens. Oh, that it would happen more often. Because, you see, the unbelieving world thinks we play a kind of game of make-believe, we Christians... We, don't, we have our own kind of strange, funny things that we do. But as far as the unbelievers are concerned, most of the time, they think we don't actually derive much pleasure or benefit from our so-called religion. That's nonsense. Of course we derive great benefit. But the thing is, when God does come in supernatural power, supernatural power, people tend to sit up and say, hey, wait a minute, we didn't know you were involved with something as powerful as this. Mm. please Lord give us more miracles give us more evidence of your mighty power in our day yes there was great joy in Samaria now we turn over to Romans chapter 9 and we find the complete opposite of joy are joy and sorrow mutually exclusive no they're not a Christian particularly can have joy and sorrow in their life at the same time. The particular sorrow that Paul refers to is one that is, I'm afraid, rather scarce in the church. Chapter 9 begins with Paul saying to these Christians in Rome, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He had been a fanatical Jewish worshipper. And Jesus got hold of him and made him into a fanatical Christian worshipper. But he felt deeply, deeply the pain in his heart because of all these fellow Jewish people who were friends of his in many cases he knew them well, some of them very well and they were not saved they didn't believe in Jesus they wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus and Paul doesn't write to the Christians in Rome and say you know I'm really quite upset about it no, he says I have great sorrow great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart over those my fellow countrymen who don't know Jesus. Now I sometimes feel particularly sad and shed a few tears over friends, particularly family members, who have never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I cannot honestly say, I couldn't write what Paul wrote here. I couldn't write that. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish 
in my heart. When this happens, our praying is transformed. Our praying becomes pleading, tearful, tearful, agonizing pleading. And sometimes that's the length to which we have to go before God moves in power to bless the very people for whom we're praying. Great joy, great sorrow. Now, in the first Corinthians, chapter 16, there Paul uses this word great again. And what is the greatness this time? Well, there it is in first Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9. He says, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. You remember our Lord Jesus in conversation with some Jewish people said one day, I only do what I see my father doing. Hmm. Some Christians believe, and I think they're mistaken, that in every situation, more or less, a need always calls for our response if we're free and available. Is that true? No. That is not the basis on which our Lord Jesus operated. He did not live frantically, trying to reach as many people as possible. He did reach vast crowds, praise God, and many were, became believers. But this principle is meant to apply to us as well as to him. He said, I only do what I see my father doing. And some Christians get frustrated because they believe, you know, it'd be a great idea to start this, to do that. And they start it. And God doesn't seem to be involved in it at all. He doesn't seem to bless it. Nothing seems to come of it. It doesn't achieve anything. And it's very frustrating. <laughs> well, God, did God tell you to do it in the first place? Well, no. But it seemed okay. It was an okay thing to do. But okay things don't always produce okay results. The principle Jesus operated on is one that we could very well imitate much more often. I only see, do what I see my Father doing. In other words, every morning, Father, what's on your agenda today? What are you doing today that you want me to be involved in? Ah, ah, yes. Because if God's already at work in the situation, you're off to a flying start when you get in there and begin to talk about Jesus. But if God's not at work in that situation, and you go in and you start talking about Jesus, you probably get kicked out. Not always, but, um, you know, I'm trying to make the point that the principle is so important that we get our guidance from the Lord. And here is Paul saying that one way or another, he became aware that there in Ephesus, a great door for effective work Aha, has opened to me. Effective work. I like doing effective work, whether it's cutting the grass or telling somebody about Jesus. I like to do work that shows up, that shows the difference at the end of the day. Mm, so do you. Effective work and Christian work requires doors be opened by God. When the Lord opens the opportunity, when he creates the opportunity and tells us, I have begun to do something here, go for it. Get in there and get on with it. It's great. It's wonderful. Hmm. Yes, Paul was aware that this door was obviously opened by God. This opportunity was created by God. God's good at opening doors. 
And if God creates the opportunity, then the work's going to be effective, because he is involved and that makes all the difference. Well, well, yes. So, we're almost there. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that our Lord Jesus is not only our Saviour, our Redeemer, but he is our rightful Lord, and more than that, and as well as all that, he is our great High Priest. We have a great High Priest who has gone into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, that is, hold firmly to the faith we profess. We have this reminder in Scripture that there is somebody at the court of heaven who is representing us and more than that is praying for us and encouraging us to pray along with him. Because in the same paragraph, the writer says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So often, particularly I think in cases of illness, some Christians, not too many Christians I would hope, but some Christians, they try prayer as a last resort. If the chemist can't give me something for this, if the doctor can't give me something for this, if the surgeon can't do anything for me for this, oh, I could pray. Oh, yes. I could have prayed first. And it might have saved you the bother of going to the chemist and the doctor and the surgeon. <laughs> no, I'm not despising medical help or surgical help. I just had some a few weeks ago. No, but the fact is, our Lord Jesus is there, our great high priest, and encouraging us to come and be blessed through prayer. Because, you see, in uh, chapter 7, the writer follows this up by saying, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he's able to save for all time those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for us. Some people depend so much on a family doctor they have known for most of their lives, that they dread the day when he retires. What will I do? Well, I do. He's retiring. Well, the good news is our Lord Jesus is not going to retire. He's going to live forever and be there praying for us. So we're encouraged to pray not just ourselves, but along with him. One more scripture in Hebrews, chapter 13. Chapter 13. The writer, as you know, if you're familiar with this wonderful little letter or book, ends up by saying, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Yes, our God is described there as the God of peace. And he's also described as bringing back from the dead our Lord Jesus, raising Jesus from death. Satan thought he had struck at last an effective blow when Jesus hung limply on the cross. But he had a rude shock awaking, awake, awaiting him. Easter Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. The Lord was risen. And we are so blessed to have a risen, reigning Lord who is 
in the presence of Father God as our great high priest who is interceding for us and is head over all things for the church. We cannot lose if we're attached to him, if we belong to him. No. And he's described here as the great shepherd of the sheep. The Bible tells us all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the Father has laid on his Son, the iniquity of us all. And this Lord Jesus, this great shepherd of the sheep, paid in full for our salvation. He gave his life for the sheep. The good shepherd, said Jesus, lays down his life for the sheep. We're so privileged. We're so blessed to have a saviour who was willing to give his entire life for us, to shed his blood for us, to go through a terrible experience on our behalf, that we might be saved from our sins. We have a great God. We have a great salvation. And if only more of our unbelieving friends could see the greatness of the church. The church is not a bunch of religious nuts. The the true church, the Lord Jesus people, true born again believers in Jesus, were the greatest people on the face of the earth. Now, I'm not quite finished. We have a great God. That's emphasized way back even in the Old Testament. Where, for example, in the Psalms, we read the psalmist saying, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. The Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. That's indisputable. We have a great God. But do we realize, do we honestly believe that the Lord wants to make us great, wants to make you great, wants to make you great, wants to make me great? A great God desires to have a great family. Those of us who have families want to see them develop and progress and become great people. Great people. Because we want them to be great. What significant. Living a lovely life and achieving worthwhile things. And that's true of God's desire for us. Interesting that in Second Samuel 22, the words of Psalm 18 are repeated almost word for word. And Psalm 18 was written by David and sung to the Lord, I'm sure, when he was wonderfully protected from his enemies, of whom he had not a few. And he wrote there in Psalm 18, uh, and singing praise to the Lord, verse 35, You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great you stoop down to make me great listen God did not only stoop down he came down in the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins to save us from wasted messed up lives lives that might achieve much humanly speaking financially speaking or whatever else but not in the purpose of God he came to save us from all of that and he wants to make us great. One of the many ways through which God spoke to me as a younger man, calling me to forget all about my ambition to be a farmer and to become instead a preacher and pastor. We used to sing this wonderful hymn, I don't, haven't heard it sung for years. We sang in the parish church a hymn which began like this. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. And the second verse was the one that hit me. 
Rise up, O men of God. The church for you. The church for you. For you. For you. For me. The church for you doth wait. Of strength unequal to our task. Rise up. Rise up. And make her great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your church is great. And we pray you'll forgive us if we have settled in our own personal individual lives for a kind of mediocrity which is not your will for us. We thank you that you are the God of excellence. You want the best for us. You want us to become great, great believers, great lovers of other people, great lovers of God, great servants of Jesus great people in every good sense of that word so will you create afresh within us the longing for you to make us really really great people for your glory and the blessing of those around us in Jesus name Amen